Welcome, everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy Season 2, Episode 8, coming to you live here from Sephardic Synagogue in Brooklyn. Um, I'm very excited about this one because, thankfully, I had a light day in work, so I was able to really uh, reread a large portion of the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And uh, this book is one of the most influential books that I've ever read in my life. I really originally I had listened to it. Um, I discussed it with my rabbi in Israel um, and it really blew my mind and uh, just really well done. If you want a good read um, regarding a lot of the topics that we've been discussing, I highly recommend it. But before we do that, I want to discuss a couple of ideas that I encountered over the, the past week and some of my own learning. Um, one of them is this idea of show the Buddha. This is something that Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, so often when we have something in our lives that we're afraid of, something that we uh, find painful, something that we're avoiding, we're all avoiding different things that are triggering different types of pain and suffering and fear and anger and whatever the negative quote unquote emotion is. We run away. But the practice of Zen is really pretty remarkable because it encourages you to do the opposite. It says, bring that spirit of mindfulness to especially those things that you don't want to be mindful of. And it's in those times when you're feeling tired, when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling, you know, not with it. Those are the times to notice. Those are the times, and as Thich Nhat Hanh says, show the Buddha. Uncover your wounds and show them to the Buddha. And obviously that's that's something to be understood in a deeper way, which is like show it to consciousness, bring it to awareness. And once you bring up to awareness that which is really causing you suffering, that is the way to bestow it with compassion, with understanding, and with forgiveness, if that's what you're seeking. Um, and similarly, in Judaism, as a corresponding idea that uh, Rabbi Hittery uh, explained, uh, it's a very beautiful Kabbalistic idea. They say that the Torah is covered in bandages, and it's our job to uncover those bandages. Um, I think this is exactly the same idea, that the Torah is almost hidden away from us because it's sometimes too tender for us to touch it. It's too tender for us to really open up all our wounds, all of our emotional wounds, to fully embrace the teachings of the Torah. Um, and I think the way to do that is to really uncover those bandages, reveal those wounds to awareness, to Hashem, and allow that compassion to seep in naturally. And it's almost like a healing ointment of compassion and mindfulness and Thich Nhat Hanh compares difficult emotions and all emotions to a little baby that's crying and what is it, a little baby that's crying what is what does that baby need that baby needs the mother's love and affection and attention and that's exactly the same thing as any human emotion that we go through it's like the little baby crying for attention and then what do you do you don't just shove it away you pick up the baby, you hold it, you rock it back and forth. That's what mindfulness does. Uh, I think this is so really moving. Um, you know, anytime you're breathing in and out during your meditation, they have what's called metta meditation, which I think we can, you know, we can do a small one right now. You can close your eyes and 
picture somebody that you really love. Wow, what a surprise. Baruch Abba. Right <laughs> Baruch Abba. Unbelievable timing. Thank you so much for coming, my friend. This is going to be a very fun one now. Now I know it's going to be great. So we're, so we're going to do this, this beautiful practice where you bring to mind somebody that you truly love. It could be a child. It could be a parent. It could be a sibling, a niece, a nephew, a grandparent, a friend, anyone you that you really, really love. Someone it's so easy to feel love and compassion for. And picture them in your mind and notice how much you love them. Notice how much you want them to feel love. Notice how much you want them to feel at peace. And say to them, may you feel loved. May you feel at peace. And then you could pick a more neutral person. Somebody that you don't have negative emotions towards, but you also don't have such positive emotions towards. Maybe somebody you, you randomly saw in the street. Somebody that you got a quick glance at at work. You have really no attachment to them. And you can say, may you feel loved. May you be at peace. Now, perhaps the, the more difficult stage of this, you bring up somebody who is kind of conflicting with you at times, someone that it's harder for you to feel positive emotions towards. And you picture them and think of the whole context of their lives. And you repeat to them, may you feel loved, may you be at peace. So that's a, a mini version of a metta meditation. You can sit with that as long as you like. Really, it's it's a very, very powerful type of meditation. And I think anytime we do like a mindfulness meditation, that type of meditation is amazing to incorporate into it either in the beginning, at the end. It, it really colors the way we do meditation. And I just love this. You know, Jack Cornfield mentions in passing in one of his lectures, you could think about the yogis in the caves in India, breathing in and out compassion with every breath. And as you breathe in, you think of their breathing and you breathe alongside them, breathing in and out compassion for the entire universe, for the entire world. And that's the Tao. They say the Tao is, sinks to the lowest point, and that's why it's like water, because it just has a sense of awareness, just a sense of understanding of how it all is. And in so doing, that is its compassion. And you can breathe alongside the Tao, breathe as the Tao to all of reality. That's what that means. So here's a story that that really, really struck me uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh. Sorry, not from Thich Nhat, from Jack Cornfield. Uh, one day, Azorba walked along the road and saw an old man in his 90s planting an almond tree. Right, It takes about 20 to 30 years for an almond tree to bear fruit. Uh, so Azorba says to this old man, he says, why are you doing that? Right, you, Implying you're probably not going to live to see the fruits of your labor. And the old man said, I carry on as if I should never die. 
And Azorba said, I live as if I might die in any moment. So which of these is right? Should we live as if we should never die? Or should we live as if we might die in any given moment? Ah, so David says number two. Oh, oh you said both. Amazing. That's exactly that, that's exactly the point. Is that I mean, I don't think you can possibly be wrong here. Matter. Exactly. It doesn't even matter, but it's yeah, but how do you decide? How do exactly. you decide how... which in which instances you're living for tomorrow and exactly. which instances you're living for today? That's that's part of the the cheshbon here. It's it's not always easy to decide, but it's kind of it almost happens naturally, right? It happens naturally sometimes where we need to live as if we might die, and then it happens naturally where we feel like we're just coasting, like we're never going to die. But in reality, they're both true, right? And right. yeah. So, so I think that. If you believe in the underlying concept of Olam Haba, then you can kind of coast in the middle because it doesn't really matter because you don't know what's coming next. Mm -hmm. It's almost in a trust in Hashem type of thing. Well, why should I fear death? If, if I trust in the, in the yeah, the Hashem, I was going to say the Tao, but it's kind of like the whole system of how everything is. And just mm -hmm. like I heard this saying, what's maybe from you, yeah, about, about there's a man looking, he's standing on a beach. And all you can see is the sand that he picked up in his hand. Mm. But there's a whole beach around him. Wow, sand. I never heard this one. So so he only sees the sand in his hand. He has no idea mm. that around him is a beach of uh, 100 miles. Wow. So you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, 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 100%. Like, about the whole way everything works. If you're limiting your perspective, then you you won't be able to carry both of these at the same time. But once you expand that perspective, so I think one thing that really helps with this is understanding that time is not as it seems. And once you realize that, you say, these two are both saying the same thing, paradoxically, right? Living as if you should never die is the realization that what you really are can never die. And at the same time, you might die in any moment. That's true from the egoic perspective. And if you balance those two things, you're pretty golden, honestly. And and that's it's almost identical to in one pocket, Anuchi Afar Vaifir, I am but dust and ashes. In the other pocket, Bishvilin Ivra Haolam, and the 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 entire universe was created for me. If you don't balance those two, because like we always say, your brain is in the world, but the world is in your brain. You can't discount the importance of either um for our experience of being a human being and the human condition right so now i'd like to spend some time with you guys i'm not sure how much of this will get through um but it really this is if you if you ever read anything in your life i really think this is worth it um this book called siddhartha by herman hess and i picked some specific excerpts that i think are really really hitting to the core of a lot of what we discuss here and a lot of Zen ideas that I think are so well expressed by this uh, beautiful Swiss author. So let's, let's so the, the story goes that this man, Siddhartha, this is a fictional book, but based on, you know, tangentially on true events of like uh, the legends about the Buddha. And the main character's name is Siddhartha, but he's actually not the Buddha in this book, he's 
on his journey towards becoming one, but he meets a man named Gotama, the Buddha. And he spends his early life being a very ascetic type of Hindu, restricting any kind of pleasures, running away from any type of worldly attachments. And then he realizes, well, that's ego. My attempt to be ascetic and to be away from pleasures is creating arrogance in me. And that's not actually helping me let go of my ego. So then he ends up living a more uh, indulgent lifestyle. He has a, a woman that he's in an affair with, and um, he has a child from her eventually, and he indulges in all the pleasures of life, becomes very wealthy. And then he sees that to be empty as well. And then he goes back and he remembers, ah, I met this ferryman. This ferryman took me across the river between one lifestyle and the other, between the ascetic lifestyle and the pleasurable lifestyle. Let me go visit this ferryman again. Uh, so he decides and he asks permission from the ferryman, can I stay with you for a long time? And the ferryman says, sure, we have enough food for both of us. You can stay here, live in my hut. Have, I'll provide food for you. So listen to this. Siddhartha stayed with the ferryman and learned how to look after the boat. And when, when there was nothing to do at the ferry, he worked in the rice field with Vasudeva. Vasudeva was the name of the ferryman, gathered wood and picked fruit from the banana trees. He learned how to make oars, how to improve the boat and to make baskets. He was pleased with everything that he did and learned and the days and months passed quickly. But he learned more from the river than Vasudeva could teach him. He learned from it continually. Above all, he learned from it how to listen, to listen with a still heart, with a waiting, open soul, without passion, without desire, without judgment, without opinions. He's spending day after day after day, month after month, year after year, just pondering the stream of this river. He lived happily with Vasudeva, and occasionally they exchanged words Few and long-considered words. Vasudeva was no friend of words. Siddhartha was rarely successful in moving him to speak. He once asked him, Have you also learned that secret from the river? That there is no such thing as time? A bright smile spread over Vasudeva's face. Yes, Siddhartha, he said. Is this what you mean? That the river is everywhere at the same time? At the source and at the mouth, at the waterfall, at the ferry, at the current, in the ocean and in the mountains, everywhere. And that the present only exists for it, not the shadow of the past, nor the shadow of the future. That is it, said Siddhartha. And when I learned that, I reviewed my life, and it was also a river. And Siddhartha the boy, Siddhartha the mature man, and Siddhartha the old man, we're only separated by shadows, not through reality. Siddhartha's previous lives were also not in the past, and his death and his return to Brahma are not in the future. Nothing was, nothing will be. Everything has reality and presence. Siddhartha spoke with delight. This discovery had made him very happy. Was then not all sorrow in time? all self-torment and fear in time. 
Were not all difficulties and evil in the world conquered as soon as one conquered time? As soon as one dispelled time? He had spoken with delight, but Vasudeva just smiled radiantly at him and nodded his agreement. He stroked Siddhartha's shoulder and returned to his work. And once again, when the river swelled during the rainy season and roared loudly, Siddhartha said, Is it not true, my friend, that the river has very many voices? Has it not the voice of a king, of a warrior, of a bull, of a night bird, of a pregnant woman, and a sighing man, and a thousand other voices? It is so, nodded Vasudeva. The voices of all living creatures are in its voice. And do you know, continued Siddhartha, what word it pronounces when one is successful in hearing all its 10,000 voices at the same time? It is so, nodded Vasudeva. Oh, sorry, we said that already. Vasudeva laughed joyously. He bent towards Siddhartha and whispered the holy Om in his ear. And this was just what Siddhartha had heard. All right, so just as an aside, this, this term Om, you might have, might have heard, is a very ancient, uh, almost like a mantra that people can repeat over and over again. And the beauty of it is it's supposed to signify everythingness. Because O comes from the back of the throat, and M, the, the M sound, comes from the lips. So you're, you have the entire panoply of the acoustics of your mouth involved in this sounding of OM. It goes from the back of your throat all the way to the front of your mouth. And that's almost a microcosm for meditating on all of it. And that's exactly what Siddhartha had heard when he really listened to all the sounds of the river. As time went on, his smile began to resemble the ferryman's, was almost equally radiant, almost equally full of happiness, equally lighting up through a thousand little wrinkles, equally childish, equally senile. Many travelers, when seeing both ferrymen together, took them for brothers. Often they sat together in the evening on the tree trunk by the river, they both listened silently to the water, which to them was not just water, but the voice of life, the voice of being, of perpetual becoming. And it sometimes happened that while listening to the river, they both thought the same thoughts, perhaps of a conversation of the previous day or about one of the travelers whose fate and circumstances occupied their minds or death or their childhood and when the river told them something good at the same moment, they looked at each other, both thinking the same thought, both happy at the same answer to the same question. So this is total equanimity, total in sync nature with the Tao, with the stream, with the river that is life. Something emanated from the ferry and from both ferrymen that many of the travelers felt. It sometimes happened that a traveler, after looking at the face of one of the ferrymen, began to talk about his life and troubles, confessed sins, asked for comfort and advice. It sometimes happened that someone would ask permission to spend an evening with them in order to listen to the river. It also happened that curious people came along, who had been told that two wise men, magicians or holy men, lived at the ferry. The curious ones asked many questions, but they received no replies, and they found neither magicians nor wise men. 
they only found two friendly old men who appeared to be mute, rather odd and stupid. And the curious ones laughed and said how foolish and incredible people were to spread such wild rumors. So that's the end of the first section I wanted to read with you. And, you know, this this ending part is, is awesome because we mentioned last time in the Tao Te Ching, when the wise man hears of the Tao, he lives his life in accordance with it. When the foolish man hears of the Tao, he laughs scornfully about it. And if, if he didn't react that way, it wouldn't be the Tao. And that's almost the same thing here. People are hearing these legends about these two men who are just sitting by the river. The wisdom that they have attained is so simple. It's the wisdom of just listening. The wisdom of just being with the stream that is life. And as they do that, they develop a certain equanimity. But the reaction of people may be wildly different. What they say is, you know, they say when you meet a, a Zen guru and you try to say something a little bit emotionally charged towards him, hoping hoping for some reaction, it's, it's like dropping a coin into a well, but never hearing the splash. Because you never get a real reaction from it. So that's the same thing that's happening here. That people are confessing their sins, asking for comfort, for advice, probably asking for some wisdom. And it's, they're just there to listen. That's kind of the vibe of a Zen monk. Somebody who's present with you. Somebody who is an empty canvas. And he just bounces back. Anything that you say, it just is just heard. It's just listened to. So that's the first section. The next section, um, the, the chapter, this chapter is called Om. So I took a section from here. So now, as the, the book is progressing at this point, Siddhartha is realizing more and more truths. And here comes the next part. As he went on speaking and Vasudeva listened to him with a serene face, Siddhartha was more keenly aware than ever of Vasudeva's attentiveness. He felt his troubles, his anxieties, and his secret hopes flow across to him and then return again. Disclosing his wound to, his, to this listener was the same as bathing it in the river until it became cool and one with the river. As he went on talking and confessing, Siddhartha felt more and more that this was no longer Vasudeva, no longer a man who was listening to him. He felt that this motionless listener was absorbing his confession as a tree absorbs the rain, that this motionless man was the river itself, that he was God himself, that he was eternity itself. As Siddhartha stopped thinking about himself and his wound, this recognition of the change in Vasudeva possessed him. And the more he realized it, the less strange did he find it. The more did he realize that everything was natural and in order, that Vasudeva had long ago, almost always been like that. Only he did not quite recognize it. Indeed, he himself was hardly different from it. He felt that he now regarded Vasudeva as the people regarded the gods and that this could not last. Inwardly, he began to take leave of Vasudeva. In the meantime, he went on talking. When he had finished talking, 
Vasudeva directed his somewhat weakened glance at him. He did not speak, but his face silently radiated love and serenity, understanding and knowledge. He took Siddhartha's hand, led him to the seat on the riverbank, sat down beside him, and smiled at the river. You have heard it laugh, he said, but you have not heard anything. Let us listen. You will hear more. They listened. The many-voiced song of the river echoed softly. Siddhartha looked into the river and saw many pictures in the flowing water. He saw his father, lonely, mourning for his son. He saw himself, lonely, also with the bonds of longing for his, far his faraway son. He saw his son, also lonely, the boy eagerly advancing along the burning path of life's desires. Each one concentrating on his goal each one obsessed by his goal, each one suffering. The river's voice was sorrowful. It sang with yearning and sadness, flowing towards its goal. Do you hear? asked Vasudeva's mute glance. Siddhartha nodded. Listen better, whispered Vasudeva. Siddhartha tried to listen better. The picture of his father, his own picture, and the picture of his son all flowed into each other. Kamala's picture as his, his, uh, his ex-lover also appeared and flowed on. And the picture of Govinda, his best friend, and others emerged and passed on. They all became part of the river. It was the goal of all of them. Yearning, desiring, suffering. And the river's voice was full of longing, full of smarting wall full of insatiable desire. The river flowed on towards its goal. Siddhartha saw the river hasten, made up of himself and his relatives and all the people he had ever seen. All the waves and water hastened, suffering towards goals, many goals, to the waterfall, to the sea, to the current, to the ocean, and all goals were reached, and each one was succeeded by another. The water changed to vapor and rose, became rain and came down again became spring, brook, and river, changed anew, flowed anew. But the yearning voice had altered. It still echoed sorrowfully, searchingly, but other voices accompanied it, voices of pleasure and sorrow, good and evil voices, laughing and lamenting voices, hundreds of voices, thousands of voices. Siddhartha listened. He was now listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty taking in everything. He felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening. He had often heard all this before, all these numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. He could no longer distinguish the different voices, the merry voice from the weeping voice, the childish voice from the manly voice. They all belonged to each other. The lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of indignation, and the groan of the dying they were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways. And all the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, all the sorrows, all the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them together was the world. All of them together was the stream of events, the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to this song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or laughter, when he did not bind his soul to any one particular voice and absorb it in his self, but heard them all, the whole, the unity, 
Then the great song of a thousand voices consisted of one word, Om, perfection. Do you hear? Asked Vasudeva's glance once again. Vasudeva's smile was radiant. It hovered brightly in all the wrinkles of his old face as the Om hovered over all the voices of the river. His smile was radiant as he looked at his friend, and now the same smile appeared on Siddhartha's face. His wound was healing, his pain was dispersing. His self had merged into unity. From that hour, Siddhartha ceased to fight against his destiny. There shone in his face the serenity of knowledge of one who is no longer confronted with conflict of desires, who has found salvation, who is in harmony with the stream of events, with the stream of life, full of sympathy and compassion, surrendering himself to the stream, belonging to the unity of all things. As Vasudeva rose from the seat on the riverbank, when he looked into Siddhartha's eyes and saw the serenity of knowledge shining in them, he touched his shoulder gently in his kind, protective way and said, I have waited for this hour, my friend. Now that it has arrived, let me go. I have been Vasudeva, the ferryman, for a long time. Now it is over. Farewell hut, farewell river, farewell. Siddhartha bowed low before the departing man. I knew it, he said softly. Are you going into the woods? Yes, I am going into the woods. I am going into the unity of all things, said Vasudeva, radiant. And so he went away. Siddhartha watched him. With great joy and gravity, he watched him, saw his steps full of peace, his face glowing, his form full of light. That's the end of that chapter. So to me, this is one of this part that I just read to you is so deeply profound to me. Because this is exactly the teaching, if you will, that any student can ever give, can ever get from his teacher. And that is the ability to just sit alongside that teacher and observe the river together for long enough until the, the teacher looks at the student and says, so you've finally gotten it. And he looks into his eyes and he says that and he says, well, now it's my time to give you that teachership and you pass it on to the next guy. And I'm going to go off on my own into the into the forest. And in uh, Hindu culture, this is called sannyas. Sannyas is when they, um, you know, when they turn a certain age, whether it be 70, 60, and they retire from life and they go off on their own and they, they, they wander in the woods. They've lived a life of purpose for so long. Now they're having this ability to live this life of purposelessness. And that's considered an extremely high and noble uh, lifestyle at the end of one's life of accomplishment. So to me, this is what a bodhisattva is. A bodhisattva is a person who has attained a certain degree of enlightenment an understanding of the river and decides I'm going to keep giving of this understanding. And the way for me to give is just to observe with someone alongside them. 
and then wait till they have that same realization and then pass it on. So now this is Vasudeva, the ferryman, giving Siddhartha the keys to the to the boat and saying, all right, congratulations, you're the new ferryman. And what does it mean to take somebody across the river? The river is quintessentially a Buddhist symbol for crossing over the river of life, crossing over the river of samsara in a way. And when you get to the samsara is the is the wheel of of birth and death that we all go through, you know, uh, constantly until we finally overcome it. And the way to cross that river is to follow the teachings and you know, based on whatever understanding you have, you cross that river. And once you cross the river, you don't hold the the raft with you. You let it go and you leave it for the next guy. So that's exactly what happened here. The ferryman crossed the river and he left the raft for Siddhartha to teach and to, to use for whoever's coming next. So that's the, the journey of life that we all go through is, is symbolized by this. And crossing that river is equivalent to enlightenment so now we'll we'll read the last section of this if you guys are you guys still down for this uh this last section i hope you're enjoying it i'm i'm i yeah I love yeah good stuff fantastic so now the last section uh is called govinda govinda is the best friend of siddhartha who was they both started off together as like ascetics learning in the you know in the Hindu lifestyle that they had, and they separate, they went their separate ways after that portion of their life. But now Govinda returned to uh, Siddhartha, and here Siddhartha is dying at the end of the book. Bend near to me, he whispered in Govinda's ear. Come, still near, quite close. Kiss me on the forehead, Govinda. Although surprised, Govinda was compelled by a great love and present. Uh, presentiment to obey him. He leaned close to him and touched his forehead with his lips. As he did this, something wonderful happened to him. While he was still dwelling on Siddhartha's strange words, while he strove in vain to dispel the con conception of time, to imagine nirvana and samsara as one, while even a certain contempt for his friend's words conflicted with a tremendous love and esteem for him, this happened to him. He no longer saw the face of his friend Siddhartha. Instead, he saw other faces, many faces, a long series, a continuous stream of faces, hundreds, thousands, which all came and disappeared, and yet all seemed to be there at the same time, which all continually changed and renewed themselves, and which were yet all Siddhartha. He saw the face of a fish, of a carp, with tremendous pain, painfully opened mouth, a dying fish with dimmed eyes. He saw the face of a newly born child, red and full of wrinkles, ready to cry. He saw the face of a murderer, saw him plunge a knife into the body of a man. At the same moment, he saw this criminal kneeling down, bound, and his head cut off by an executioner. He saw the naked bodies of men and women in the postures of, and transports of passionate love. He saw corpses stretched out, still cold, empty. He saw the heads of animals, boars, crocodiles, elephants, oxen, birds, he saw Krishna and Agni. He saw all these forms and faces in a thousand relationships to each other, all helping each other, loving, hating, and destroying each other, and become newly born. 
Each one was, a, was mortal, a passionate, painful example of all that is transitory. Yet none of them died. They only changed, were always reborn, continually had a new face. Only time stood between one face and another. And all these forms and faces rested, flowed, reproduced, swam past and merged into each other. And over them all, there was continually something thin, unreal, and yet existing. Stretched across like thin glass or ice, like a transparent skin, shell, form or mask of water. And this mask was Siddhartha's smiling face, which Govinda touched with his lips at that moment. And Govinda saw that this mask-like smile, the smile of unity over the flowing forms, the smile of simultaneousness over the thousands of births and deaths, this, this smile of Siddhartha was exactly the same as the calm, delicate, impenetrable, perhaps gracious, perhaps mocking, wise, thousandfold smile of Gotama, the Buddha. As he perceived it with awe a hundred times, it was in such a manner Govinda knew that the perfect one smiled. Take a quick drink of water. <laughs> no longer knowing whether time existed, whether this display had lasted a second or a hundred years, whether there was a Siddhartha or a Gotama, a self and others, wounded deeply by a divine arrow which gave him pleasure, deeply enchanted and exalted. Govinda stood yet a while, bending over Siddhartha's peaceful face, which he had just kissed, which had just been the stage of all present and future forms. His countenance was unchanged after the mirror of the thousandfold forms had disappeared from the surface. He smiled peacefully and gently, perhaps very graciously, perhaps very mockingly, exactly as the illustrious one had smiled. Govinda bowed low. Incontrollable tears trickled down his old face. He was overwhelmed by a feeling of great love, of the most humble veneration. He bowed low right down to the ground, in front of the man sitting there motionless, whose smile reminded him of everything that he had ever loved in his life, of everything that had ever been of value and holy in his life. And that's the end of the book. So, for me, this is the vision i mean it's it's a an attempt to give it over but the flashing of images the merging of everything into different things the same object changing into many different forms we are all made of the same stuff but it just manifests differently in different patterns in reality and that's the vision the vision is the ability to see the oneness behind the multiplicity of forms. And when one has this experience, which one cannot control, one is absolutely blown away by it. But the way to do it is not by trying. It's just by listening. It's by listening and by watching and by noticing. And there is no goal. You just keep listening. You just keep watching. And you keep noticing the flow of events and the flow of time. And you see eventually, whether this year, next year, next decade, next lifetime, eventually you will see the absolute unity of all things.
And you'll see that you actually had seen it all along and that you didn't even realize that you were staring it in the face the entire time. So without further ado, we'll go to the Zohar. <laughs> but if you guys have any questions or comments at this juncture, I would love to, to field them. But or we could just leave it at that and, and go go forward. Yeah, it's very it's very deep stuff. In my in my opinion, I I really benefited from this understanding and the ability to look in the river and see that the river is in all places at once, and that is equivalent to the storyline of your life. So last time in the in the Zohar we left off. With the continuation of the the derasha by this tayya by this Arab driver, and he said he's from Kafsil, he says he's from Bina, um, and he says that in, right in the trunk of this tree, all worlds exist. From it, all holy powers are nourished and deployed. You could imagine yourself approaching this tree of life that's etz, this etzachayim, and from it, all things emerge. Right, so you could talk about it as the river from which all things are emerging. Or you could talk about it as the tree of life that is giving forth all the fruits of reality. He smote the two Ariel of Moab. So this is um, a continuation of when they asked him, who are you, sir? <laughs> and he says, I am Ben Ayahu Ben Yehoyada. The continuation of that pasuk in Shemuel Bet is he smote, he hit the two Ariel of Moab. And what do they explain? Because Moab is a reference to David Amelech, two sanctuaries, right? Because David comes from Rutuzwa Moavia, right? She's from Moab. Two sanctuaries existed because of him, were nourished by him. So Hashem allowed for the existence of two different temples first temple and second temple. As soon as he departed, the, flowing, uh, the flow flowing from above ceased. So when Hashem removed his presence, his Shekhinah, the flow stopped. He, as it were, smote them, destroying and obliterating them, and the holy throne fell. Holy, the holy throne is a reference to Shekhinah, as is written. And I was in the midst of the exile. Yehazkel says, I was in the midst of exile. Ve'anochi, the word Anochi also is a reference to Shekhinah, because it, it is the manifestation of the entire divine personality. When you say Anochi, you're talking about the tip of the iceberg. Underneath that whole iceberg is all the sefirot, all the different emanations of God, but it manifests right here, right now, as I, as me, as this personality, and that's Shekhinah. So that rung called I was in the midst of exile. Why? By the river Kivar. So why was the, the Hashem Shekhinah now exiled? It was by the river Kivad, the river of already. What does that mean, the river of already? Right, Kivad means it already happened. Um, the point here is that the river of Yesod was of the past and had ceased to flow, causing the destruction of the temple and the exile of Shekhinah. So that's the Kabbalistic understanding. We'll see what it means. On account of the river gushing and flowing, whose waters and springs ceased so that it did not flow as before, as is written, a river dries up and is parched. Isn't that amazing? We were just reading about a river over there. Here, it's compared to a river of emanation as well from God. Dries up in the first temple, is parched in the second temple. Right? So it's making a derasha about both parts of the pasuk. Both temples are signified here as being dried up. 
So he smote the two Ariel of Moab, Moab, for they originated Me'av from Father in heaven and were destroyed and obliterated because of him. Right? So the two temples came into being through the flow of divine emanation. And when that flow ceased, they were destroyed. So what I'm going to want to talk to you guys about in a minute is this idea of dualism, because we just kind of went from this, this more Buddhist approach about the river, where the river is all that there is. I'm the river, you're the river, it's all the river. And that's almost a sense of monism, of all being one. But here, and, and I think just as valid, is the Kabbalistic Jewish approach, which is more of a dualistic thing, where it's like, whenever you want to talk about this, you also have to recognize God is that which you are not, if we're talking about your ego. So God is fundamentally that which you are not. So if, if that's what God is, this idea of dualism is actually helpful in understanding the separation, the relative reality that is dualism is still true. Right? There is a an experience of dualism that we all have. It's relatively false compared to the oneness of God. But on our experience right now, there is this truth of dualism. So it makes sense to speak about when God stopped his emanation, the flow stopped. And that's why we're going to talk about in a minute, what does that mean when, when sin takes over, when sin removes from that emanation? Because in, in the more Zen way of looking, right, we were just talking about you having this, this mystical vision of all different faces and all different evil acts and good acts all are flowing into each other and, and morphing into each other. And therefore, good and evil are really just relative terms that don't actually denote reality. But at the same time, we have this experience of evil brings me away from God. We'll see what, what, the, what the Zohar is going to do with that. So all the lights illumining Israel darkened. That's what happened when the, the flow of emanation stopped. Further, he went down and slew the lion. All right, so it's the continuation of the Pasuk is he went down and, and slew the lion within the pit on a snowy day. In the former times, when this river gushed its waters below, the people of Israel were fulfilled, offering offerings and sacrifices to atone for their souls. Then from above would descend the image of a lion whom they could see on the altar, crouching over its prey, right? So the, the, the fire on the altar of the, of the Mizbeach and the Bet HaMikdash was compared to a lion crouching. And it, it devoured the korban like a lion devouring its prey. However, right? So consuming sacrifices like a fierce warrior while all dogs hid themselves away, not venturing out. The dogs representing the demonic powers. But what happens when sins prevailed? And I love that we get to talk about this in the same class because, like I said, this idea of sin doesn't really come up within the Zen understanding. But we all know what that's like to feel like I made a mistake. I have sinned. So how do we get from this point of sinning towards returning towards God? Towards returning to the experience of it's all one. Let's see what Judaism has to say about that. When sins prevailed, he des descended to the wrongs below, and he killed the li that lion no longer willing to provide its prey. He, as it were, killed it. 
He slew the lion, really, within the pit and plain sight of the evil other side. Right, the sitra ahra. We're going to explain that in a minute. Seeing this, the, that other side was emboldened to send a dog to eat the offerings. What is the name of that lion? Uriel. For his face is the face of Aryeh, a lion. What is the name of that dog? Baladan is its name. For it is excluded from the category of, of Adam. Bal Adam. Human, right? Not human. But is rather a dog. Its face, a dog. I, I keep thinking of Donald Trump. Abu Bakar, al-Baghdadi. <laughs> that's all I could think of as I was reading this. Uh, he died like a dog, you know, so that's what I think of. Um, on a snowy day, a day when sins prevailed and judgment was decreed above by the celestial court. Of this is written, she is not afraid of snow for her household judgment on high. Why? Because her whole household is clothed in crimson and can endure the fierce fire. So what in the heck is going on here? Let's explain. So, sin severed the connection between Yesod and Shekhinah, between the male and female element. That's from Eshet Chayil. Aywa, uh, exactly right. Which which uh, which part is it? The snow and the and the and the yes, exactly yeah. that that vatas behayvitz kapeha, right? Exactly. Semeru um, fishtim, right? So, this the sin is severing the connection. Between Yesod and Shekhinah, and stopping that flow. So as a very human experience, what we have is we say, oh, I, I made a mistake. I sinned before you, God. And now I feel separated from your presence. Like after Cain kills Hevel, he says, uh, He says, I feel like I'm hidden from your face now, God. This is a very real human experience. Um. Right and and the flow of emanation became available now to the demonic forces. The holy line is no longer received its prey and was thus killed, as it were, by Yesod. Right, so Yesod now is killing this lion. Uh, the evil other side, the Sitra Harabisha, the demonic realm, which represents the the shadow of the divine. Right, because in the dualistic sense, anything that has a light side also has to have a dark side. So here we have the Sitra Ahra. It's not all peaches and cream. When you do well and the divine flow is, is flowing, that's great. But when you do something that causes a stoppage to that flow, what's the experience? Uriel, who is one of the four angels surrounding the Kisa Kavod, alongside Michael, Gabriel, and Rephael. So Uriel, which literally means God is my light, right? And it's I don't think it's a coincidence here, but the light emanation that could have been flowing is not flowing anymore. Why? Because Ariel or Uriel was killed. So though here connected by the Zod with the similar sounding Ariel lion and with the Ariel symbol of the temple, Uriel is one of those four angels who surround the divine throne. In Kabbalah, those angels of the presence are identified with the four holy creatures seen by Yehazkel, by the way, in Ma'asem Merkavah. Yehazkel also sees four creatures. They could correspond possibly to these four angels. Uriel appears sometimes as the figure of the eagle, sometimes as the lion. So here for the, this, this Uriel, for the being of light to be killed, this is the experience of a human who is feeling cut off from the light and stuck in the darkness. What is the name of that dog, right? The demonic force, Baladan. So there was actually a king of Babylon named Bala, uh, Merodach Baladan. 
And they said he was Ben Baladan also. So Merodach Baladan, Ben Baladan. Why Ben Baladan? Well, they said his father, according to, uh, I believe it's uh, the Gemara, right? The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, why was he called Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan? It has been told Baladan was a king whose face turned into that of a dog. So his son sat upon his throne instead. In his documents, he wrote his own name and the name of his father, King Baladan. So what? Wh where do you think this comes from? Interestingly, we know in the art and in the, the images of the Assyrian Babylonian monuments, they had pictures of people with dog faces. So the rabbi's explanation of this is with this word, Baladan. You're not human, you're a dog. And there's a legend now, this guy's face turned into a dog. His son had to take over for him. But really, later on, it came to mean that there's this demonic figure whose name is taken to mean Bal Adam, not human. Um, and there's non-Jewish magical traditions concerning Bilad, who is the prince of demons. So just to keep that in mind, very, very, um, you know, dark images that are trying to be evoked here by the Zohar. Here, the donkey driver blends the several of these traditions to describe a demonic figure with the face of a dog who is empowered to devour the sacrifices. So I think this is the experience that we can have. We can have this experience of evil has taken over. You talk to somebody who is like an addict and they say, I don't feel in control anymore. This feeling of the evil has now taken control. I'm sure that's the experience of an addict who cannot control his urge to do something which he knows is pretty evil or going to result in something that feels pretty evil, right? I feel like a lot of times we're not aware of the darkness that we're in. Yes. You know what I mean? I think it's almost most of the time. I mean, Very often. I guess with addiction, it's a little more obvious because you know you're addicted to something, but you feel like that's the, yeah. the best path to the light. Yeah. That's what we all want. Yes. And unfortunately, though, but you, you do get those moments of clarity. Yeah. No matter how much, you know, good, quote unquote, times you had. The, Compared to living in America instead of living in Israel. A hundred percent. We think we're in the light, but are we? Absolutely, my friends. Somebody once told me it's like living in, in, a, in a barn and it smells all the time. But you get used to the bad smell. That's kind of the experience a little bit some of us are having here in America, especially with what's going on in the college campuses. But... Yeah, this this experience of of evil prevailing, I think this is like it really hits home here, and it's like something that's devouring, right? Um, so let's see what else it's saying. Um, this idea of it happening on a snowy day with sins and judgment. Um, water symbolizes Hesed, but snow symbolizes Givura and Din. Right, so water being symbolized by chesed is beautiful because chesed is just this thing that flows and turn almost turns all the turbines of the world. That's the way that people say, Olam chesed yibane. Chesed is just flowing naturally like a water course. But snow symbolizes it's more, it's more solid, like givura, din, judgment, the congealing and hardening of water. So snow is human sin, according to the Zohar in another place. According to rabbinic literature, right? So what is human sin there for? It's the congealing of chesed. It's when chesed is not able to flow. Uh, according to rabbinic literature, the year-long punishment of the wicked in hell is equally divided between fire and snow. All right, so snow also has this, this uh, flavor of sin to it. 
and suffering. The donkey, right, when when the water cannot flow, when your chakras are blocked up, if you have, you've ever seen uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, the chakras cannot flow. The donkey driver who confounds the rabbis refers cryptically to a snowy day on which he and Rabbi Shimon, Bari Yochai, right, in another place in the Zohar, it's referred to, this Taya'a says, oh, by the way, me and Rabbi Shimon, Bari Yochai, we were sowing beans in 52 different colors. We were planting beans of 52 colors which is alluding to the 52-letter name of God and to the word ben, son, right? The word son is in gematia ben, bet and nun is 52, also referencing God's name. What is going on there in that statement? That's pretty crazy. Why is he saying that him and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai were sowing beans in 52 different colors on the day of a snowy day? What does that mean? That means in the, the snowy day when the world is overcome by sin, that is ironically the time when you might just find that you will be able to understand the 52-letter name of God. Whatever that means. So I think there's a hint there that in the lowest point, we're open to the greatest salvation. We're open to the greatest change. Like to talk about the the Biata Mashiach happening in the most dire moment, yeah. It's it's so funny. I heard something about this today. But it's almost like we're lucky to be in the lowest point because we have the the longest way up. Yes. Someone born in Yemot Mashiach or whatever it might be is already that that's already what he's exposed to. Yeah. You know who knows what we're for us. The only way up. The, the only way is up. You know, like as they say, there's a beauty in that. Baruch Hashem, exactly, and 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 that's. When when you reach your lowest point, you're open to the greatest change. That's another quote from the Avatar series, one of the Avatar series. Avatar. It's good, it's good yeah. stuff. Good stuff, man. Right? So she's not afraid of snow for her household, judgment on high. That's the reference. Right? So, like you said, Dr. Nasser, this Eshet Chayil in Mishle is understood as Shekhinah, actually. Right? The Shekhinah is the Eshet Chayil who does not fear the power of Deen. Why? Because Shekhinah has an affinity with Gevurah and Din, symbolized by the color red, and she executes the decree of judgment, right? Because Shekhinah is the one that manifests Gevurah and Din. So she does not fear judgments, fire, or snow. That's amazing, right? Because if you are, even if you are in the midst of sinfulness, even if you're in the midst of your own sinfulness or someone, uh, the sins of people around you, if you can endure by connecting with Shekhinah, which is really, I think, in a lot of ways, the presence of this moment, the divine presence of this moment, you will be able to get through anything. Even the, the deen, even the justice that says, I no longer deserve to live because I did something so evil. You will be able to endure that judgment on high, right? That divine justice that wants to claim you now, You'll be able to survive that if you are finding refuge in Shekhinah. Exactly. Exactly. To say Sadekami Meni and to, to be modeh. He could have kept it to himself instead of admitting to this shameful exactly. thing. He was only concerned with the divine presence and doing the right thing. 100%. And in so doing, he's koneh the melucha. The three objects that he's koneh are is kingly objects. Mateh Hotemet and Petilim are the things that a, a king would wear. So in doing that, he's Kone the Milucha. Beautiful, beautiful idea. Um, 
Exactly. Uncle Richie said sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you can put you pull yourself out. That's 100 percent true. Um, and and the, the beauty of this is that no matter what you've done, there is always the salvation of the Shekhinah. Um, so I think we can pause here and just really I want to connect overall the, the beginning and the ending of this class, which is there's this stream of life. It's continuing on and on. Within it will be the sounds and the, the faces of horror and terror and hell and sin and evil. But at the same time, that doesn't last. And it morphs and it merges back into the river. And it appears as pleasure and happiness and joy and equanimity and peace. And when you realize that all you have to do is continue to flow, continue to endure. That's what it means to be in touch with Shekhinah. That's what it means to be fully involved with the divine presence. No matter how you're feeling. Tired, sad, angry, mad, glad, whatever it is. Just be present with the Shekhinah and you will ride out the storm of judgment on the snowy day. Thank you, everybody. I hope, I hope you enjoyed. <laughs> oh, what are you kidding me? Thanks again, Michael. How did you like the... Uh, this, uh, the oh, good, night. good night, everybody. I'll give what you love you. You're the best. Love you. See you. Good night, everybody. I will, for sure. I hope you guys uh, appreciated the, the Siddhartha stuff as much as I did. I hope that's, that's the great I part. Did. Yeah. Grandpa Richard, yeah. Hey. I want to see you here in person one time. I miss you. I have to get there for sure in person. How are you, you doing? Look, How's your nicely, you look very nice, clean shaven. Thank you. I just got a little haircut today. Little You're a good looking guy. Uh, uh, so I, I I nice shirt, by the way. What band is that? Grateful Dead. 35 years old. <laughs> nice, nice. That's that's OG. Huh? From the Peter Luga days or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't get rid of <laughs> I love it. Take it easy, guys. Love you. Take it easy. Good night, Grandpa. Over and out.